Broadcasting from the heart of downtown Hollywood. This is SoFloRadio.com. For our radio listeners, that the end of the world is going to come next Tuesday at 4.30 p.m. And the Department of Health has requested homeowners to unplug all electrical appliances, turn off radios and TV sets, and disconnect gas stoves and furnaces. The post office recommends that you mail early in the day. And for those with automobiles, alternate side of the street parking will be suspended. That's the end of the world next Tuesday at 4.30 p.m. Mark it down. This is an original. Yeah, it is an original. Welcome to Group Don. I am Tony C. Good afternoon, everybody. As always, of course, I'm joined live in the studio by the man, the master who ensures that our groove is satiny smooth, MC Gramps Master Flash. Oh, George is. <laughs> and don't forget, as Eric B. once said, MC means move the crowd. So if Eric B. says it, it is there for so. Of course, every... Garubathon centers around an attitude of gratitude. Move to Mahalo to everybody tuning in here in America and around the world, y'all. First ever, I, I sweated over this. It's, I couldn't decide whether it is the Groove Gone Greenathon or the Groovathon Gone Green. Not that I'm anal retentive, but that was, a, that was a source of concern for me. Either way, we're going to get our green swirl on. Lots of great uh, Irish stuff today. You know, with St. Patrick's Day coming up. I will be spending... St. Patrick's Day in my traditional manner, at home, off the roads, watching the uh, watching the 1995 original production of Riverdance, you know, with uh, Flatley and Gene Butler, you know. God bless Moya Doherty, and we Willie Whelan, the, the, the composer of the entire thing. Got lots of bloody brilliant Irish stuff today. I got stuff ranging from traditionally inspired to acoustic to go- I've got garage Irish garage psycho punk from Ireland what else do I have and I've got just some fabulous Irish all out shredding and on the subject of groovy green things I'm going to try once again to convince George and Bill Maher <laughs> why pot shouldn't be legalized nationally period we'll I, I get to channel Bill Maher <laughs> we'll see how that one goes you're, you're my Bill Maher you know, you're, you're the, the standard, the standard yeah, for Bill Morris. What else do we have going on today? I got some uh, classics from the original National Lampoon Radio Hour. Plus, the folks in Kansas and Louisiana have something in common. They're all about to get mercilessly reamed. Um, halfway home with my Ben Carson prediction. And, of course, all of that's going to be surrounded by two hours of the greatest, most diverse groove. Anywhere on the air, it is just past 2 o'clock in the only Hollywood that matters anymore. That's right, it's Hollywood, Florida. Just past 8 a.m. on the Big Island, where the uh, cow crew gets so much daylight, they don't need to save it, baby. No daylight savings out there. They got plenty. Just past 7 in the Elves of Western Europe. Shout out to Living St. Anne in Lisbon. Yo, George, you about ready to spark this fatty up? Ready. All right, saddle up and stick around. Kicking it off with brand new stuff from the Melvins on the Groovedot.com.
right now. Yo, check it. I grab the mic and commence the rip shit. Pace in the box cause I make the dip shit. Flip the script just like Marlon Brando. Run more games than that park in Orlando, Florida. Or the other in Cali. Yeah. And if I go broke, I'll just pit Sally. Push in the bush, but I don't mean George. Fake the funk and end up in a more. But no, not me, no way, home slice. And when I play CeeLo, I use my own dice. All the down low, but I don't wear a hoodie. Run to the store, the time I got the goodies and the treats for the beats for the Jeep that were made by me and the man with the nice on the tee. So everybody gather, yeah. I'll pay like damn rather. You wanna flip sugar, slip it don't matter, cause you can't do me nothing. No sense in bluffing. I could that ass like stove top stuffing standing for a while I steal the show yeah and act like you know come on Like a fly, I'm on some other shit. I elevate like an escalator. So hold your head and I'll test you later. Yeah, so come along with the man. Yeah, I'm shutting shit down just like the son of Sam. But my name ain't David. Hell no. And for the bullshit, you can save it. Yo, if I decide to pursue a career in hip hop, what should I do? What would you do if it happened to you? Out with the old and in with the new. People sit back and then they assume. But I recline and just hit the boom. Yeah. There's 92, and you know who the boss is, Diamond, yeah. yeah, you know the chubby kid, envious friends say I wonder what the hell he did to blow up so fast, and they move slow as a turtle, or a fat chick in a girdle, sitting around eating both uh -huh. pop the video in and start sweating to the oldies, uh -huh. get a life, no need to live trite, I smooth as butter, like my man called Pipe, calm, collected it, cool, respected it, when things get hectic, the only antiseptic is real hip-hop, so I head to the lab, frying them seat like the bacon on the Slab or the chicken from Kentucky. Brother say I'm lucky. Keep a Jimmy in my pocket cause the stunts wanna. things today. Did you know that? Sure. Some special things for you. Some special things for me too. And we have a special guest here today. Can you say that? Guest? Sure. I knew you could. We're going to talk today to a musician. The guy who plays the bass. And you know what a bass is, don't you? Can you say that? Don't? Sure you can. Hello. How are you? 
Can you think you get somebody to give me a cup of coffee or something? You're not used to getting up early, huh? <laughs> I'm not here yet. What time do you usually get up? I usually get up when the sun is warm, like 1.30, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I like to get up around 6.30. That's insane. You're stupid. Huh? You should sleep late, man. It's just much easier on your constitution. We're going to talk about your bass and, and how big it is and things like that. It looks like a violin, but it's bigger, isn't it? It's a hell of a lot bigger. Can you say... Wow, that's a little wimpy thing. Can you say wimpy? Wimpy. That's right. Wimpy thing. I like the way you say that. Did you know that? I do now. The hell, you're easily amused, aren't you? I say wimpy, wompy, wambly. I know what you mean. You know something? I like what your your face does when you play. It kind of gets all sort of squinched up. Yeah, know? somebody told me once that my face, when I played a bass, it looks like some sort of a, uh, in, like a big uh, jellyfish or something like that. It just keeps moving. Sure. You can never identify what the face is. It's real ugly sometimes, and real weird looks like a fruit or something. Like it just keeps flashing at you know, like yeah. you, rubber, sure. rubber or something.
no one knows what it's like to be the bad man, to be the sad man behind blue eyes. No one knows what it's like to be hated, to be faded, to telling only lies. Get your Irish swirl on there. 
The Chieftains with Roger Daltrey. That is from an Irish evening. I played a different version of that, uh, I don't know, several months ago. Just a, a great version of that song. I absolutely love it. Big Chieftains fan. Before that, screaming Lord Such. Flashing lights from Lord Such and Heavy Friends. You know, I got that album um, at a place called Venus Records in New York years and years ago. That album, if you don't recognize the drumming on that, then you're not a real rock and roll fan because nobody can hit the drums as hard as John Henry Bonham. And that album was produced by Jimmy Page. It's got Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, Noel Redding is on that. Uh, John Bonham is on it. Um, Hopkins is on it. And it was named, there was a point at which I've got, I wrote this down. It was, uh, it was named the worst album of all time in a BBC poll in 1998. But it, you know, there's some great stuff on that. And basically, you know, Jimmy Page like thought it was a joke when he was doing it. You know, because the guy's a real, he actually, this guy, uh, Screaming Lord Such, he's got the, uh, the official monster raving loony party, which is an actual political party. Now, I'd vote for them. I, you know, I got no problem. Sure, with that. right now. Yeah. Well, then, Mr. Rogers interviews a bass player. That is from National Lampoon's Radio Hour. We got lots of stuff. I think that's from. Uh, they've got a whole bunch of albums out. I think that one's from um, the the one that I'm familiar with is uh, that's not funny. That's sick. You know, with the frog with no legs yeah. on a little moving thing. Those are some great. If you, if you haven't listened to some of those original comedy albums, George, George and I are in perfect agreement oh, on this. We grew up on them. Yeah, exactly. They, there's one, the other Mr. Rogers one is like, hey, Mr. Rogers, mm-hmm. uh, look, uh, we don't want you in the neighborhood anymore. You spend a lot of time with the kids. Uh, I heard right. somebody said you were touching their kid. <laughs> we want you out of the neighborhood. No, I thought that was good. Before that, Diamond D and the Psychotic Neurotics. What you seek, that is from Stunts, Blunts, and Hip Hop. Yo, Diamond D got more tricks than a Hunts Point. Oh, for that Breakstraw Humpty Dump. That is uh, a couple of guys from uh, Los Angeles who do a lot of mixing. That is from the Live Mix Part 1 in 99. And kicking it off, brand new stuff from the Melvins, Hideous Woman. That is going to be, that's like the track they release as a teaser um, they have an album coming out in June that is going to be called Bases Loaded. And Bases is B-A-S-S-E-S. And it's like totally bottom heavy. They're going to have like five five or six different people playing bass on it. Big shout out to uh, the pinball wizard, Calhoun Cougar, Eric, Eric Snedden for turning me on to that one. Hipping me to that groove, as it were. He's a big uh, Melvin's fan. Those guys have been around for I don't know how long now. They've been around for 30-something years at least out of uh, – they're from the West Coast from like, you know – that whole grunge region up there. I saw the description of sludge rock. I was like, what the fuck is that? I don't know what sludge rock is. I really, it sounds sludgy. It's very sludgy. These guys, you know, I was a medium, I was always kind of a lukewarm Melvin's fan. You know, it's Dead Kennedys. It's, it's that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's fine if you're into that stuff. But this, I can't wait for this CD to come out. Bases loaded, the Melvins. That's Hideous Woman. Brand new stuff. That's uh, the track they released. The album's coming out. Nah. They've got one that's, they've got one album coming out this year. That's like their normal stuff, and then the bases loaded is coming out, I guess, in June. So, um, so that's some really good stuff. You want to keep your eyes out open for that. So, yeah, you know, stuff that what went up? on. What, what corner? I Keith Emerson passed away. Yeah, Sy- Sayonara. I was, you know, what I realized, you know, when I when I saw that, cracked open and uh, re-listened to Tarkus. Okay, and I, you know, I was never that big an ELP fan. There, I liked them. But they didn't make my A-list. I was more of a Rick Wakeman fan. And, okay. I, and I saw ELP in Philly, and they were great. Put on a fabulous show. I was like 15 or something, went with my cousin, you know, at the old Spectrum there. And great show. But I started listening, you know, 
re-listening to stuff like it, brain salad surgery, all this stuff. And it's like, okay. Eh, I couldn't quite get there with it. So uh, Sayonara, you know, that was one of those bands. I was, Greg Lake came from uh, um, King Crimson originally, okay. you know, as did Ian McDonald, I think. Ian McDonald was in King Crimson originally and you know, went on to Foreigner and stuff like that. So what else went on this week? Well, uh, Ben Carson. Okay, when Ben Carson was number one in the polls, I said, I said, he's going to get whomped on Super Tuesday and he will quit the race right after that. What happened? He got whomped on Super Tuesday and quit. So that's part one of my prediction. Part two is going to take a little longer. Now what we have to do is wait and see what state he moves to, okay, because he's going to run for Senate in 2018. Somewhere. Somewhere yeah. he is going to run for Senate. Now there's every two years there are 33 seats 33 Senate seats that are open. One, well, one out of those three is 34. It's 100. But he's going to run. And I'll tell you something. It, it occurred to me when I wrote this down here. Uh, where is it? Um, he'll campaign when he does. He's going to campaign on an anti-Hillary uh, Clinton platform, which will you know, be fairly ironic because it's exactly what she did before becoming Secretary of State and then, of course, President of the United States, which she'll be at the time. She's going to be president when he's running. For Senate. And of course, the irony is, what did she do to become senator? She moved to another state and became senator. So he's going to take a page out of her book, and then as he's doing what she did, he's going to run on a campaign of criticizing her. Watch. Watch. That will happen. Now, trust me, but you know, I know that he's so boring and so, you know, basically he's, he's a sedative unto himself. All right. So it'll probably go right by us, but watch. That's going to happen. Um, Here's this one. I just this is one of those things that just cracks me up. Um, Kansas, of course, fucked royally as always, and um, Louisiana is now totally screwed yeah. as well. The Thank classic you, thing. The quote. There was a great quote that I read. It's from uh, a Republican senator, Les Donovan from Wichita, admitted the failure of the GOP's tax cuts, stating. We hoped that it would be a magic lantern and everybody would react to it. But, eh. <laughs> but, eh. It's hard to get a company to, to uh, uproot their business when they're established and move to another place just because the difference in tax policy. And the guy who uh, wrote the article on it from the, uh, the local Wichita paper had a great, great line. He said, expecting tax cuts to work like rubbing a magic lantern reveals the faith-based nature of the Republican Party's dogmatic adherence to cutting taxes for the wealthy to stimulate economic growth and bring in revenue. They believe in the policy, not because it's worked before, but because they, they hope it will work like a magic lantern in the future. Yet, in Kansas, Republicans are now discovering that there is no such thing as a magic lantern okay, when it comes to operating the state's budget. They're now doing the unthinkable. Okay, They're considering raising taxes. <gasps> I know! Color me shocked. And this is the this the one that you know, and the, the other thing of course is that what's what's hilarious that after all this time, okay, as of right now, okay, I wrote down that Mon Pa Kettle may finally be wising up because Obama's approval rating is higher than Brownbacks or the legislature. Okay, the Brownbacks got the legislature's got twenty five percent, Brownbacks only twenty one percent approval rating. Okay. Mm -hmm. Obama's like at forty. He's like at forty percent, and the 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 highest approval rating of of the poll went to the Supreme Court of Kansas, 
which Brownback has spent his entire time criticizing. They got the highest marks. So that's what you get for doing what he did. And now, of course, Jindal, who is no longer the uh, the governor of Louisiana, mm. okay, those chickens are coming home to roost. They, they elected a Democratic governor. Um, Jindal went out and basically he screwed Louisiana to the, yeah. to the wall. He might, this is a guy who thought that oil, he basically was counting on oil staying at at least $100 a barrel forever. Yeah. Okay. He cut deals with, with all of these companies that have to be honored. And now literally the unthinkable is, has been brought up. Okay. Cause remember where we are. We're in an SEC state. Mm-hmm. They, because the budget shortfall is going to be so great and there's nothing to do about it, they're going to have to start cutting from state Fun, funds from things that the state normally would help to pay for. And one of them is the LSU football team, which is like the cracking open of the seventh seal, you know, for people in SEC state. You want to do what? I mean, you know, unbelievable. So that's how bad that got. Now, to me, one of the things, it, it, you know, Jindal is now like basically writing op-eds. And, and in one breath, he's he's criticizing Trump, you know, for being who he is, and then in uh, basically, you know, at the exact same time, basically trying to say that Obama's responsible for the rise right. in Trump. And to me, yeah. yeah, to me, you know what it's like? I remember when on election night in 2012, Fox News had all of their expert analysts, okay, mm-hmm. you know, Karl Rove, um, Frankfurter, Krauthammer, um, Sean Hannity, all these guys were on there. They got it completely wrong. Complete. They were as wrong as you could be, literally on election well, day. L- l- let me say this. Uh, people who say that, and, I, and I've been hearing that, that, that Obama's to blame right. for Donald Trump. I've been hearing that. Okay, sure. Yes, that is correct because in, let me, in, in this respect, the racists were so upset at having, a, a, a black president, B, a black president that succeeded in all of the things that the previous white president failed at miserably, that they are going to rally around anyone who says that they're a racist, even if they suck in every single other respect that might qualify someone for a president. So, yes, Obama is to blame for being such a very good black president. (laughs) God damn it. How dare you succeed? Yes. Well, that was the whole thing, though. You know, Fox got all that stuff wrong. And the next day, Mm -hmm. all those guys were back. Okay. You know, Carl Rove's back with his little wipe off board and all that stuff. And, you know, the thing is, is that. Fox doesn't care if these guys get it right. Okay, they only care if these guys can convince their viewers that they're right. Sure, no, okay, those are two that, entirely. That's things. what they exist. So Bobby for. Jindal's doing the exact same thing. Why would you listen to a guy? Okay, with the recent results that he's got, which is basically fucking Louisiana hard, hard. Okay, the, the state is now basically they could have to cut sixty percent. Of the stuff, of the money that goes to things like, you know, making sure that kids don't get beat up by the parent, all these things, you know, going in and all the things that we, we think are good as a society, okay, that the state pays for, going to have to be gone. And the problem, of course, is that they cut all the other shit already. Schools. You know, the first place Kansas and Louisiana went to cut their budgets, schools. Let's cut the school budget. Who needs education? Who needs education in a state? It gets in the way. In. It gets in the way of the Bible. That's yeah, pretty much. So, you know, and... When it comes to Trump, you know, the rise of Trump, um, if you want to read a uh, absolutely spot-on analysis, 
Fareed Zakaria wrote a uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post on um, March the third. There it is, and it's uh, the riot. It's it really does pinpoint how Trump got to where he is politically and whose fault it is. And it's basically it's the fault of the people who now criticize him. Okay, this is basically of their own making. It's twenty years of them not saying what Trump said. You know, not speaking yeah. out. <clears throat> You know, and promoting stuff that Trump is now. But those are their only selling points. They've been saying that uh, how to achieve instant credibility with those kinds of people. Say that you like guns and that you don't like black people. Sure, And then anything else that comes out of the, you, they will accept anything else that comes out of their mouths. Tax cuts for the rich will be good for you. Okay? TPP, good for you. Uh, no environmental control regulations, good for you. And I, you're you know what Jindal, Jindal did? He tried, he literally tried at one point to get rid of the income tax Entirely in Louisiana, but that and the thing was that the reason that that failed is because it got out that the way he was going to make up for that money was going to be raising the sales tax. Way, so effectively, what he was going to do was give the top twenty percent of of income earners another twenty thousand dollars a year, and he was going to screw the other eighty percent who were actually going to get a tax increase because the amount of money they spend on sales tax far far and away exceeds the amount of money they will be spending on income tax. So they would. So the land, the bottom eighty cent would just get screwed. When that got out, they can't. They they vetoed it. The the you know the the citizenry finally rose up and said no. By, by the way, Jindal, what's his, his first name? Is something like Muhammad or something? Isn't he? Where are the birthers are, 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 are swarming, swarming around him? He he looks like a raghead to me. He looks like a terrorist with a shave. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, what he is is a blithering dolt who has yeah. now put the state of Louisiana in a ditch. So low that yep. I don't know that there's a you know it's going to take years. And the thing is, is that a lot of it is because of deals that he set up that they right. have to honor. Now there he is, gave tax right. breaks to sure. all these corporations, and now they have to be honored. And so the and what's going to happen is, of course, it is going to be miserable in Louisiana from a fiscal point of view for the next decade. And you know who they're going to blame? The current Democratic governor. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. Sure. The next guy who runs is going to blame is going to run on a on a campaign of blaming the current Democratic governor. You know, as if what happened before like didn't happen. It's, it's right. as if it, it's as if what happened yesterday doesn't matter. Listen to me now. <laughs> hear me tomorrow because what happened yesterday is irrelevant. I the, there's a bright side. There the, is the good news is yes, it's Louisiana. <laughs> Show up, boy. Show up. I mean, they they've been they've been competing for last place against uh, oh, you know Mississippi God. and Alabama that whole uh, for, for schools. You know, the dog they, region. I, I, and I'm and I and I love those states because they make Floridians look smart. They make Florida look you know erudite and uh, sophisticated by comparison. What you, know? you talking about? The only reason that Florida schools aren't the worst in the nation is because of them. Mississippi, Mississippi well, Louisiana, Mississippi. Alabama. You want to you get that you. mantle, you've got to get really dumb to pass Mississippi. I call them the banjo tree states. That's it. I hear banjos playing. Paddle faster. Yes. <laughs> Paddle faster. Going to keep the group going. Yeah, you know what? We are going to be getting our Irish swirl on. I'm going to be getting my weed swirl on. We've got all kinds of stuff, but we were looking through stuff. We've got some great Irish music coming up. One a band, I can't believe that you know this band. I got him on my phone. You does. He's got <laughs> George. God bless him, man. 
right? Yeah. Has got Irish music at the yin-yang. Sure. I lived in Ireland. I have a whole bunch we, of Irish we, stuff. We got be- some mix in the wood pile in my family. That's the only way that we can account for it. See, I can't. I can't. I'm 100% Russian, except I happen to have lived in Ireland. And I got a whole thing about that. About I, I explain that. My family comes from that region where we had Northern a lot of, Spain. Lot of uh, Irish refugees. So <laughs> it's I'm a sure bagpipe playing we got an, in Spain. Fusion, right. We, got, uh, we painted our faces and put uh, lime in our hair and wore kilts. Right you on, know, baby. Yeah. But with an accent. It's groovy. Yes, yes. And you know why the uh, Galicians wear kilts? No. Because sheep can hear zippers a mile away. Oh, ba-doom, bam, How is it? Did Joe, you remember when uh, Salman Rushdie, the, uh, the, the, <coughs> the shah, put out verses. a million, a million dollars? Yes, I love it. Okay, and, and there's, you know, and everybody in Ireland, everybody names their dog Rusty. So there was a joke out. Did you hear about the, did you hear about the carryman who shot his dog? <laughs> Heard he can get a million pounds for shooting old Rusty. <laughs> That's horrible. That's horrible. It's horrible, and yet somehow can't yeah. stop laughing at somehow. it. Let me get my comedy drum. Get your comedy. We're going to keep the groove going. Got all kinds of stuff for you. Ian Dury on the Groove with Don on SoFloRadio.com. Sex and drugs and rock and roll is all my brain and body need. Sex and drugs and rock and roll It's very good indeed Keep your silly ways Or throw them out the window The wisdom of your ways I've been there and I know Lots of other ways What a jolly bad show If all you ever do Is business you don't like And drugs and rock and roll. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. Sex and drugs and rock and roll is very good indeed. Every bit of clothing ought to make you pretty. You can cut the clothing. Grey is such a pity. I should wear the clothing of Mr. Walter Mitty. See my tailor, he's called Simon. I know it's going to fit. It's a little bit of advice, you're quite welcome, it is free. Don't do nothing, that is cut price, you know what they'll make you be. They will try their tricky device, trap you with the ordinary. Get your teeth into a small slice, the cake of liberty. And drugs and rock and roll. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. Sex and drugs and rock and roll.
Why does anybody do anything? We're just bugs on a rock in a void. See, I believe we were a mistake. Life. Earth. I believe it is each man's duty to correct the mistake that nature made. Extinguish mankind like the pathetic match that it is.
to let the mic smoke. Now I slam it when I'm gonna make sure it's broke. When I'm going, I won't get song. Cause I won't let nobody press up and mess up the scene I set. I like to stand in a crowd and watch the people wonder, damn. But think about it, then you understand. I'm just an addict addicted to music. Maybe it's a habit. I gotta use it. Even if it's jazz or the quiet storm. I hook a beat up, convert it into hip hop form. Write a rhyme and graffiti in every show you see me in. Deep concentration, cause I'm no comedian. Jokers are wild if you wanna be tame. I treat you like a child and you're gonna be named. Another enemy, not even a friend of me. Cause you'll get fried in the end when you pretend to be competing. Cause I just put your mind on pause and I complete when you compare my rhyme with yours. I wake you up and as I stare in your face, you seem stunned. Remember me, the one you got your idea from. But soon you start to suffer. The tuna get rougher when you start to stutter. That's when you had enough of fighting it to make you choke. You can't provoke, you can't cope. You should have broke because I ain't no joke. joke. As serious as cancer Who can keep the average dancer Hyper as a heart attack Nobody's smiling Cause you're expressing The rhyme that I'm styling This is what we all sit down to write You can't make it So you take it home Break it and bite Use pieces and bits Of all my hip hop hits Get the style down Packed in it's time to switch Put my tape on pause And add some more to yours Then you figured You're ready for the neighborhood chores The E-M-C-E-E Don't even try to be When you come up to speak Don't even lie to me You like to exaggerate Dream and imagine Then change the rhyme around That could aggravate me So when you see me Come up freeze Or you'll be one of those seven MCs They think that I'm a new jack But only if they knew that They who think wrong Or they who can't do that style that I'm doing They might ruin Patterns of paragraphs based on you And you all be DJ if anything he play Sound familiar I'll wait to E say play him So I'ma have to diss who broke You can get a smack for this I ain't no joke microphone like a grudge be a whole of record so the needle don't budge a whole of conversation cause what i invent i nominated my dj the president when i'm see y'all keep a freestyle going steadily to pucker up and whistle my melody but whatever you do don't miss one there'll be another rough rhyme after this one before you know it you're following the fiend waiting for the punchline to get the meaning like before the moral of my story i'm telling nobody beats the arse so stop yelling save it put it in your pocket for later cause i'm moving the crowd and be a record fader no interruptions till the mic is broke when i'm gone then you can joke cause everything is real on a serious tip keep playing and i get furious quick and i take you for a walk through hell freeze your dome then watch your eyeballs swell god you out of trouble stays darkness when it get dark again then i'ma spark this microphone cause the heat is on you see smoke and the finish when the beat is gone i'm no joke no joke
There you go, baby. I believe my soul is on fire. Paul, that is bad company, man. First band, that was like the first super band. One of those bands. Also, the first band signed to uh, Swan Song. That was the first band that uh, Zeppelin signed to their new labels. I did not know that. Yeah. Paul Rogers, man. Let me tell you something. That guy, there are some voices out there in music, you know, that that make that. They're they're right up there on the shelf next to Louis Trez. Okay. Rogers, that voice is rock and roll. Chris Cornell is another one. Okay. There are three voices. You know, somebody was asking me about this, and there were three people I came up with. It was Rogers, Chris Cornell, and Tom Jones. Tom Jones is another guy I put right up there. That guy's voice is fantastic. I know you're cracking up, man, but I'll tell I, you. I, I like Tom Jones. Tom I've always Jones, liked Tom Jones. The guy, for 40 years, he said, he said chicks throwing their, their hotel keys on stage. Mm-hmm. All right? Say what you will. Credit where credit is due to the man like that. Before that... Eric B. and Rakim, I ain't no joke. You know why? Because he nominated his DJ for president. Damn, Skippy. There was this thing going around on uh, Facebook about the 12, you had to name like 12 albums, but only one by each band that were, you know, major influences in your life that had been with you, you know, throughout your life. And Eric B. and Rakim's paid in full. That made my list. Absolutely. Before that, the, the, I've been waiting for tomorrow all of my life from Soul Mining. A bit of a takeoff on the Lincoln Ed. You know, we forget how funny Jim Carrey is sometimes. Jim Carrey is hilarious. Yes. And every yes. once in a while, you know, I go back and I'll go through some stuff. He did all those Lincoln ads he did from Saturday Night Live. Just hilarious stuff. Before that, a favorite of ours right here, Alton doing yep. Dulemon from uh, their Island Angel uh, CD from 93. And they're from Donegal. The original version of that was done by a band called Clanid. Uh, from the album, that was their first album, I think, uh, Dulemon, which means okay. seaweed in Gaelic, as I wrote. <laughs> yeah. There you go. You said gay and lick. Gay and lick at the same time. Thank you. It's <laughs> <laughs> unbelievable. We have reverted back to fart yeah. jokes. I love it. <laughs> but uh, we started. absolutely sensational stuff. And later on in the show, I'm going to be talking uh, about... Um, a whole bunch of Irish stuff having lived there and some of the memories that came back to me as I was putting the music together because I saw Clannad live in 1978 wow. at uh, Carnsa Point um, along with a whole bunch of other stuff. So I'll be talking about that later. You're a wee it. lad. Oh, yes. Okay. I was uh, – I had gone back to Ireland to visit. I've got a whole thing about that because I started having memories that came back to me as I was putting together this music. And there are two people that I'm playing today that I saw in 1978. Uh, the final song I'm playing by uh, Christy Moore. He was also one of the headliners there. Clannon was one of the headliners. That is Alton doing uh, Dulemon, um, which is you know originally by Clannon. Kicking off the set, Ian Dury, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, of course. That's a man who couldn't have cared less about Dr. Jonas Salk. Polio, fuck you. I'm recording rock and roll anyway. That was his philosophy. Okay. I put pen to paper. I did it. All right. I did it this year. You're, okay. And what I wrote was why pot shouldn't be legalized nationally Period. A nightmarish tale of greed and, de- greed and deception. A BDSM fantasy of love gone bad between Chapo Guzman and Dale Carnegie. <laughs> okay, so here we go. You All ready? Right. I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Let me let me let me get stretched out here. Okay, a couple of weeks ago, um, I responded. Yeah, Bill Maher does his annual pro pot new rule segment, and I said that he was wrong to one pot quote legalized nationally. Period. And when I got around listening to what I'd said, there were two things that immediately occurred to me. Uh, the first one was that I'm right and he's wrong. Okay. Uh, okay. And the second one was that 
while my stated position regarding the subject was pragmatic enough to be mildly convincing, it lacked a certain shakabuku, if you will. So get ready for a swift kick to the head because I am back for round two and I got a fistful of bodai with me, man. All All right. right. So I want everybody to take a few deep breaths. There you go. In through the nose, out through the mouth. Good. Very good. All right. Here we go. To be honest with you, I'm uh, I'm not really sure why Bill's in such a lather over there only being 200 dispensaries in L.A. instead of the 700 that existed in 2013. Yo, dude, you live in California. Grow your own. Or in his case, you're rich. Hire somebody else to grow your own. Okay, and stop trying to compare pot to anything else because it's not like anything else, particularly abortion, which I thought was an absolutely abysmal analogy. I mean, I agree with Bill Maher that states' rights is more often than not just code for taking away rights. But he's wrong in claiming it as an absolute. And what seemed to slip his mind is that as of January the 1st, 2016, 86% of Americans live in a state where pot is, to some degree or another, legal. Let me say that again into your good ear, okay? I want to say that again into your good ear. Yeah, 86% of us live in a state where pot is to some degree or another legal. Now, there are 23 states where pot is legal either for medical use or for recreational use. And when, you know, the, the interesting thing was when I read the 86% number, I kind of get that smile on my face. Like, oh, there you go. Then I realized that there are 27 states where it's not legal. They have 14% of the population and 54 of the 100 senators. All right, the fucking Connecticut compromise, man. I'll tell you something. That you know what that is? <laughs> that is the you know what that is? That's the Newman of the Constitution yeah. at this point. Yeah. All right, but I digress. This year, 11 states have pot initiatives on the ballot, which to me seems like the slow trudge of democracy in action. The bill is correct when pointing out that progress doesn't automatically snowball, but in this case, it seems to me like his gripe is that it's just not snowballing as fast as he'd like it to. All right. My point here is that if you want to buy pot, you can buy pot. 100% of us can buy pot on any street corner. And if you're concerned about the law, 86% of us can actually buy it legally. If you have a legitimate medical reason to buy pot, 86% of us can. So, you know, do me a favor. Stop whining. Stick your hands in the dirt. Shut the fuck up and listen to what I got to say. All right, Bill? Okay, I want to set the stage here. The percentage of Americans that use mind-altering substances for pleasure has remained relatively steady for the last 42 years. And of those people, the percentage who get hooked has also remained steady. It's approximately 10%. 10% of people who use drugs or alcohol wind up with some sort of a problem with drugs or alcohol. The other thing to remember is that this also applies to a number of activities that signal signal the pleasure center in your brain, such as gambling. Um, Yeah, you remember, uh, let me see, uh, basically too much of a good thing can be bad. Uh, you remember Jim Fix? Uh, you've, you've heard of a runner's high, right? Jim mm-hmm. Fix literally wrote the book on running, okay? You remember how he died? Died of a heart attack while running. Okay, so just be careful. Mm-hmm. Now, the population keeps increasing, okay? So pure math, the pure statistics tell us that the number of users and addicts will continue to increase. And I wrote a little note here that said, I should caveat the above statement with what my advanced province staff professor once told me. Statistics are like a lady's skirt. They show you some of the facts, but not all of them. So combine that with the following truisms. You can't legislate human emotion. 
And you can't legislate individual morality, which means you can't legislate the human desire for pleasure, and you can't legislate individual greed per se, the trappings of which provide pleasure. And every time our government has attempted to abolish, or for that matter, even try to curtail the use of a product or service that provides pleasure, it has failed spectacularly. Thus, I am forced to conclude that there is no logical reason to believe that in the future, the drug problem won't get worse. It sounds pretty bleak. Okay, and that's just the Cliff Notes version, pal. You spend some time, like I did, delving into the depths of hopelessness that is the tangled clusterfuck known as the narco-industrial complex. Before you know it, you'll be washing down your oxies with Jack before your first cup of coffee. Breakfast of champions? Fuck off. I've seen the future. So if it's all the same to you, I'll be starting my days by downing an oxy Jack with a Jack back. Trademark. <laughs> well, gee golly willikers, Tony. Are you implying that there's absolutely nothing that can be proactively done to try and stem the tide of this scourge? No, I am not implying it. I am saying it outright. Okay? Think about it. All a democratically elected government can do in its purported function as an agent of the citizenry is to try and legislate to the degree that those who elected them deem necessary the industries or practices that provide pleasure or could lead to unfettered greed. Unfortunately, if there's one thing history has taught us, it's that there's a lot of money in providing pleasure. Okay, whether the source of pleasure is legal or illegal, providing it has always been extremely profitable. And as more people desire pleasure from mind-altering substances, progress and ingenuity have enabled us to produce more of those products in order to meet increasing demand while simultaneously making them easier to obtain, which is basically the same thing we did with food. Okay, or for that matter, anything else that we've ever wanted, we made more of it if we could. In addition, and this is important, information and thus knowledge, which used to be regionally confined, is now globally available in less time than it takes to convince yourself that quick and easy riches are worth the risk. Basically, the genie is out of the bottle. And the genie isn't drugs. It's the money that can be made from drugs, and not just by those in the industry, but also by those who purportedly seek to abolish the industry. And sadly, this is one of those instances where the transitive property applies, because if knowledge is power and power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, well, in the drug world, what you wind up with are greedy, violent megalomaniacs who have learned from their predecessors' mistakes and successes. We have now passed the point of no return. There are simply too many people who depend on the narco-industrial complex to put food on their tables. I mean, sure, crime still pays. Always has, always will. But nowadays, so does fighting crime. When Nixon decided to replace the war on poverty with the war on drugs, he gave us the spawn of a jackal and paved the way for his rise to power. After 42 years, the DEA is like Damien at the end of Omen Part 2. He's aware of his power that he was granted and thirsty for more. Okay? Now, I just chastised uh, Bill Maher for trying to compare pot to anything else. What I want to do is just take a moment to compare pot to anything else. Okay. Okay? (laughs) Hypocrite. Of course. I have chosen um, alcohol and gambling. And for the moment... I think these are fair analogies because of the immense profits they create and the criminal element that blossomed during their prohibition. Both of them are considered recreational, 
Mm-hmm. Both, if overused, can lead to bad consequences for users. Both are relatively ubiquitous in the United States, both legally and illegally. Both create jobs and tax revenue for states, and in some cases, the federal government. Both come with tremendous opportunity costs and real-world consequences. And both proliferated because of a because criminal organizations recognize them as incredible sources of profit. Okay? <clears throat> now, once again, we are becoming increasingly blasé about another illegal yet ubiquitously available recreational product that generates immense profits primarily for criminals. We're slowly being hypnotized into rationalizing that those profits would be better for our nation if they were in the coffers of American corporations and various branches of state and federal government than they would be in the mattresses of Mexican cartels and domestic single-family farmers. Okay, and seriously, that might wind up being the case, but I would think long and hard before we give the likes of Monsanto or R.J. Reynolds the keys to the Kush kingdom, okay, whenever American corporations have been presented with a new potential source for profits, they've inevitably done what they're designed to do. Find a way to make as much of those profits as possible. It is their raison d'etre. And I don't blame them because they're not in business for their health, okay? Of course, when it comes to an illegal industry with a massive pre-existing and ever-growing customer base like pot that is suddenly made legal, everybody and their mother and probably their grandmother going to want a piece of that pie. And then they're going to want some pizza and then some, some Ben and Jerry's and, you know. Cause, by the way, happy pie day. That's right. I want, pie a piece, day. I want a piece of that pie. I want a piece of that pie. 314, happy pie day. Thank you. If you legalize pot nationally, period, you allow already established corporations in various industries to enter the market. And along with them, come their already established armies of lawyers and lobbyists. New laws and tax guidelines will have to be written. And that won't happen until a herd of corporate lobbyists with briefcases full of unmarked, non-sequential $100 bills stampede towards Capitol Hill so they can get their crack at influencing those who are actually supposed to write these new laws and construct these new tax guidelines. And they're supposed to write these laws based on what they truly believe is best for the boat, best for the most, not best for the richest. And get a fat chance of that happening. Right. And it is all perfectly legal, y'all. It's all perfectly legal. Except for the part where an elected official uh, requests, you know, with the uh, anvil of what I write down, the anvil of re-election hanging precariously over his head. When that guy requests that the contents of the briefcase be converted to campaign contributions so that he can keep his job and therefore be able to write the way, write the laws the way the lobbyist wants him to. What's important to remember here is that corporations won't spend dollar one trying to influence a lawmaker unless they're confident in getting $2 back at some time in the future as a result of that influence. And how do American corporations collect their winnings when they want to cash out? Why, with tax breaks and government subsidies, of course. Now, this means that all those city and state governments dreaming that any day now, pot will be the fiscal Acapulco gold at the end of the legislative rainbow will get awoken by the shittiest alarm in history, care of corporate lobbyists and tax lawyers and the D.C. legislators they own, most of whom will be eager to jump on the latest money train because they know Casey Jones' final destination is the well-greased merry-go-round in the heart of downtown campaign financeville. The problem is that the pot train can only transport so many people. And at least initially, this is going to be a big problem. Because those lucky enough to already have the inside track on how to get tickets for the train 
aren't likely to give them up without a fight after they've already been seated and cracked open a cold one. And while longtime commuters between K Street and Capitol Hill have never adhered to Marcus of Queensbury rules, they've almost exclusively duked it out amongst themselves with people they already know. And the fight wasn't over who gets a seat, but rather who gets to sit in the club car and who has to ride coach. But if pot gets legalized nationally, period, you better get ready for an all-out Donnybrook. Because with that much money in the crease, nobody's going to give a shit about the third man in rule. It'll be bench clearing time. I'm going to put it another way. It's sort of like the New York City Marathon. What you've got are a bazillion entrants packed together on the Staten Island side of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, waiting for the horn to blow that signals the beginning of the race. But shortly before it does, there's a small group of people to get a head start because they're the ones that proven in the eyes of, of the organizers that they can run the race faster than anyone else. And we wouldn't want to stop them from you know achieving their best possible time. It's only after this lead group reaches the queen side that the huddled masses in Staten Island are allowed to begin. But what really makes a city marathon different, okay, from say an Olympic marathon, is that pretty much anyone can enter a city marathon. And once the big horn sounds, it's every runner for himself. If you've got what it takes to catch up and pass the lead back and bully for you, okay, not just in theory, but in practice, anyone can win. It's just that a chosen few are allowed to get off to an unfettered running start, whereas practically everyone else is forced to begin the race at a veritable snail's pace. Because in a teeming throng that large and densely packed, it can take quite a while for things to uh, loosen up enough for you to separate yourself from the crowd. Still, okay, well, there are probably a bunch of eager beavers who think this is going to be the year they shock the world. Okay, most of the people... Okay, then enter the New York City Marathon are competing against themselves. Okay, they just want to finish the race faster than they finished other races. It's in this regard that I believe pot cannot be realistically compared to other pleasure, pleasurable vices made legal in our nation's history like alcohol or gambling. Think of alcohol as the Olympic Marathon and pot as the New York City Marathon. Only a select group of runners can actually win the Olympic Marathon because they're the only participants allowed in it. But in the New York City Marathon, hypothetically, anyone can win because anyone can enter. And so it is with pot now versus alcohol then. Because these days, literally anyone can enter the pot marathon with no prior races under their belt and have a reasonable expectation of not only finishing the race, but in doing so in less than four hours. On the other hand, if you wanted to run the alcohol marathon 100 years ago, you almost certainly had to have been working out for a while beforehand. And finishing the race in less than four hours, let alone three, well, that's something you may have heard tale of, but you probably never actually witnessed it yourself. You see, alcohol is a concoction, a process that, while easy enough to learn, is in fact quite difficult to master. Weed, however, is, well, a weed. <laughs> Seriously, it's called weed for a reason. The shit will grow anywhere, as long as it gets water and light, as long as you've got those two things All it takes to grow top-flight weed is a single seed from a good strain. Plant that seed and you are off to the races. But Tony, you lament, I've never grown anything before. However will I get started and learn how to grow pot? Well, have no fear, because YouTube's here. Learning how to grow pot, okay, is no longer a secret handed down from stoner to stoner. 
if you could put together something from Ikea, then you can grow good pot, although perhaps not great pot, in amounts far in excess than what you typically consume. All the knowledge required is on the Internet, everything you need to get on the Internet. And that's the really big difference between pot now and booze and gambling then. Back before the starting guns went off for legal gambling and alcohol in the 1930s, the only way to learn a skilled trade such as bookmaking or bootlegging was to intern. You had to actually have somebody freaking teach you how to do it. There was no other way. There was no book. There was no internet. Somebody had to physically teach you. And remember something, okay? Alcohol was a previously thriving legal industry that was briefly shuttered and then given an ample heads up as to when they could restart their engines. So all American distillers had to do after a 13-year siesta was essentially turn the lights back on. The distilleries and breweries were still there. The depression was in full gallop. There were plenty of people available to work. Okay, The day after the 18th went away, the big boys came back to play, and they liked to play alone. More importantly, the big boys knew how <laughs> now I forgot where I was. More the big boys knew how to handle the refs in the in the game, okay? And there was no amount of firepower was gonna change that. Okay? Gangsters were primarily in the shipping and retailing business, not the manufacturing business. And besides, compared to companies like Budweiser and Jack Daniels, the mob was still relatively young, which made it easier for them to shift gears on the fly. So what did Lucky and Lansky do? Okay, they shifted gears on the fly. They redirected their focus to other industries where they believed the playing field was, in their eyes, even, which is to say, without government intrusion other than the hassle of law enforcement. Okay, but the government wasn't in there. Okay, handling cops is one thing, but politicians, well, that takes a more finely tuned adroitness, which is something that the boys from the Lower East Side had yet to master. Back then, the mob had no problem handling junkyard dogs at Delancey Street. But out on the D.C. Serengeti, they'd have been snacks for the pride. The mob learned very early on to think ahead. Because over the last hundred years, every time they've stumbled into a gold mine, Johnny Law and his corporate masters have stepped in and either criminalized it or taken it over themselves. The mob may have had a lot of money back then, but they had yet to amass the kind of fuck you money that the big corporations had. As Gordon Gecko pointed out to a young Bud Fox, the key to the game is your capital reserves. If you haven't got enough, you can't piss in the tall weeds with the big dogs. What baffles me is that our nation's history of corruption in all of its multifarious incarnations has been extremely well documented. I mean, shit, the Godfather's on TV 50 times a year. But even though lines from it have become part of our lexicon, we still haven't quite figured out how to call everyday usable wisdom from the trilogy. Well, hello. My name's Tony. I'd like to give it a shot. (laughs) So here goes. When Tom Hagen was asked by the Godfather if he thought the Corleone family should get into the heroin business, his answer was an emphatic yes. There's more money potential in narcotics than anything else we're looking at now, he said. If we don't get into it, Somebody else will. Maybe one of the five families, maybe all of them. And with the money they earn, they'll be able to buy more police and political power. Then they come after us. Right now, we have the unions and we have the gambling, and those are the best things to happen. Narcotics are a thing of the future. If we don't get a piece of that action, we risk everything we have. Not now, no, but, but 10, ten years, years from, from now. But when Don Corleone gave <clears throat> his final answer to Solozzo, his reason was 
It's I true. I'll give you my reasons. I have a lot of right. I have a lot of friends in politics. But they wouldn't be so friendly if they knew my business with drugs instead of gambling, which they consider a harmless vice. But drugs, that's a dirty business. No, 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 But of course, the godfather, now remember, he was talking about heroin, but the same philosophy right. applies to pot because government <laughs> labeled it as illegal. He, it makes no difference, he said, to me, what, to a, me. You know, no, what a man does, does for a living. living. You understand? <laughs> your business, it's a little dangerous. Okay? Yeah. Anyway... My note to you is final. I want to congratulate you on your new business, and I'm sure you'll do very well and good luck to you, especially since your interests don't conflict with mine. So basically, Vito Corleone was Ron Paul with a Tommy gun, and the mob were the first fundamentalist libertarians. Okay? <laughs> Maybe when it comes to pot, it should be us asking, what have we done to deserve such generosity? <laughs> it's, it's also important to keep in mind that gangsters were, for the most part, our neighbors. So to a certain degree, they gave a shit about the neighborhood. Okay, The original know-how for the rackets may have come here to Ellis Island, but by the mid-20s, the organizations that controlled them were decidedly homespun. Now let's cut to 2016. We're almost 100 years removed from the Anti-Saloon League handing to five families a multi-billion dollar industry on a silver platter. And of all the things that have taken place since then, in my mind, the most significant is that the world has gotten... Much, much smaller. Back then, what went on over there, whatever over there was, didn't matter that much to most of us over here. They made stuff over there, somebody brought it here, and then somebody else sold it to us. Okay? And sure, there were a lot of moonshiners, but much like the mobsters during Prohibition, they had to consider exactly how much to shit where they ate because so many of their clients were, relatively speaking, their neighbors. Not so much anymore. These days, the richer you are, the greater your ability to insulate yourself. And if there's one thing the Pezzanovanti have always prized, it's insulation. Or as Willie Chichi put it, buffers. The family yeah, had, a lot, of yeah, buffers. had a lot of buffers. From gated communities to private islands, from lawless regions to non-extradition countries. The more money you have, the greater your ability to create your own version of a libertarian oasis. And not just geographically. <clears throat> In the post-legalized pot fantasy land envisioned by people whose eyelids are often so droopy they could use dental floss as a blindfold, the law is applied equally to all. In the real world in which I live, a world that is virtually shrinking by way of ever more people with ever less patience, equally to all may be the aspiration, but it is rarely the outcome. Every time I see a picture of Lady Justice, I feel certain that the scales she carries in her left hand are just a a tad less evenly balanced than they were the last time I saw her. And the, the double-edged sword in her right hand seems just a little sharper on one blade and duller on the other than it used to be. Most disturbing to me is that the blindfold she's wearing is starting to look more and more like, well, dental floss. Okay, And this is the real crux of the problem. Because Lady Justice is supposed to be blindfolded to ensure impartiality. But here's the rub. She may be blindfolded, but she ain't blind. And now that she's been able to get a peek at all the shit she can have simply by the virtue of being who she is, well, let's just say it wouldn't shock me if she started showing up on red carpets wearing a blindfold custom designed by Armani. And now we're thinking about adding wannabe pot barons to the mix? Shit. They'll turn that bitch out. They'll have Lady Justice walking a stroll on 12th Avenue in no time. Okay? Furthermore, as Los Georges pointed out to me, legalizing pot 
nationally, period, sets up an interesting clash of the titans between corporations and cartels. Ah, you find, mm, kind of forgot yeah. about the cartels for a minute there, sure, didn't you? No. Whoops, a daisy. Well, let me tell you something. If you're under the misapprehension that when big business comes to town this time around, all the puny mobsters will hightail out of there just like they did the previous times, then you must live next door to the guy who believes that justice will be handed out equally to all. You know, the guy who lives in fantasy land. Okay? Have no doubt. This generation's pliers of the pleasure trades make their forefathers' versions look like a cute little cottage industry by comparison. And when it comes to flexibility, <laughs> let's just say that the uh, cartels can bend with the best of them. Because they've got a combination of liquid cash and ruthlessness that even the Jamie Diamonds of the world are impressed with. Say what you will about these shrimp dick sociopaths. There ain't nobody out there that can put together billions in cash faster than the cats from Michoacan. Shit, these boys probably have a couple billion dollars in their sock drawer. And that kind of money can affect your decision-making process. Because the first and last questions asked regarding any business decision are usually the same. What's it going to cost? Well, if you've got billions in your sock drawer, concerns regarding cost are pretty much eliminated from the occasion. Okay? So, business decisions are simply a matter of finding the greediest motherfucker in Congress who'll proxy for you. Sure, Capone had most of the elected officials in Chicago in his pocket. But if you want to go nationwide with your aspirations, you better have at least one more comma in your bank account than Al did because Congress is the show, baby. So if you're a cartel and you're sitting on a mountain of cartel cash, why change trades just because a change in the laws of your trade has suddenly opened the door to new competition? All you got to do is simply outbid and out-intimidate those who would seek to supplant you. If nothing else I say sticks in your craw, hear me when I say this. Corporate America isn't a threat to the cartels. It's the other way around. Now, in the beginning, if you legalize pot nationally, period, okay, I get the first thing that's going to happen okay, is going to be a sealing off of the Mexican border in order to try and stem the flow of illegal pot coming across it. Well, we've got a wall going up there. Don't we? We, and it's going to be <laughs> built by the people trying to send it up. But there's yeah, the irony. Yeah. And for a little while, <clears throat> this is going to make us feel good. It's going to make the politicians look good. And it's going to enable American corporations to buy more goods. Bonus package for next door neighbors Tweedledum and Tweedledumber is that the real estate value in Fantasyland will go up. And you know, Fantasyland is going to be a boom down for the first couple of years. What happens after the boom? Yeah, boy, the bust. Okay? It's going to come slowly at first. Maybe a sinkhole on the other side of Fantasyland. Not to worry. It's no problem. But then another sinkhole develops a little bit closer to the Tweedles of Fantasyland. And before you know it, the town is just one big freaking sinkhole. Because the original developers hadn't done a proper ground analysis. And so they didn't realize that Fantasyland was built on an overgrown swamp. Or even more likely... The developers did know about the swamp and simply chose not to make the information available to prospective buyers. Either way, the Tweedles of Fantasyland are now stuck with two condos at the bottom of a sinkhole. You see, legalizing pot nationally, period, won't get rid of the cartels. It's simply going to legitimize them. Oye, Mitch, Makano, ven acá. Let me see if I get this straight, okay, man? You're telling me I can come here, grow and sell pot legally. And all I got to do is pay off you and a couple of your pals every once in a while? Okay. Now, uh, which way is it to the Brooks Brothers store? In addition, we all know that they're still going to grow 
tons and tons of pot back home, just like they always have. I mean, why the fuck not? Where's the downside? We could build a 100-foot wall from the Gulf of Mexico to the Pacific Ocean. Man, it was sharpshooters 24 hours a day. they just find another way to get their shit here. Oh, yeah, Mitch. Man, I got very nice to see you again, man. Joe, man, that's a nice one you got over there, man. Well, let me ask you something, man. Does it also extend 100 feet under the ground? No? Wow. Good, okay. Well, thanks for the drinks, man. I'll see you next year with some more cash. Yo, what street did you say the Xenia store was on again? <laughs> okay. In the movie Once Upon a Time in America, there's a scene where a union organizer, Jimmy O'Donnell, known as Jimmy Clean Hands because he's not yet corrupted, is kidnapped by a group of gangsters at the behest of the companies that his union is striking. He is eventually freed, liberated, if you will, by another group of gangsters hired by certain politicians who want the strike to end in favor of the union presumably because the politicians want the union to owe them a favor in, in the future. Now, the gangsters that come in to free the union leader are Max and Noodles, played by James Woods and Robert De Niro. And when they show up, Jimmy Cleanhands asks, Who are you? Who's paying you? I think you're going to piss. I think it's going to piss you off, Mac, but I think it's those dirty, dirty politician friends of yours. Well, Jimmy Cleanhands says, You crawl back and tell them, We don't want you with us. Our fight's got nothing to do with liquor or prostitution or dope. Well, Max says, you better get used to the idea, pal. This country's still growing up. Certain diseases, it's better to have when you're still young. You boys ain't a mild case of the measles. You're the plague, Jimmy O'Donnell says. And then he points to one of the guys that took him, that kidnapped him, and goes, and bastards like him are immune. That's the difference between us and them. To which Noodles replies, take it easy. Okay? The difference is... They're always going to win, and you're going to keep getting it up the ass. What Noodles and Max told Jimmy Cleanhands back then has remained true ever since. Basically, America had the criminal version of chickenpox as a kid, and now we're like grown-ups begging for the worst case of shingles in history. My point is that we're not a young country anymore. By now, we've not only been around a corruption block more than a few times, <clears throat> We've mapped the entire crime neighborhood down to the last square inch. So one would think that as the longest standing landlords of the neighborhood, we'd have developed a good sense for who does and doesn't give a shit about getting their deposit back when they split. But such is not the case. When it comes to deciding whether or not Mr. Cartel or Mrs. Corporation sign a lease for one of our apartments, we're still as gullible as we were in our youth. You're going to love this part. In Corinthians... Chapter 13, Paul the Apostle, Paul of Tarsus, yes, Paul, <clears throat> Paul the, the Apostle, okay, wrote in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And in verse 12, he writes, for now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Now, I'm, I know right now, okay, first things first, what he's talking about there is love or the openness of heart. The uh, Greek translation, originally the word was agape, to be open to the mm -hmm. prospect of love in your heart. And right now, you're wondering how I am going to get the pot thread through this particular biblical needle. All right. You ready? Ready. Here we go. I want you in verse 12, all you got to do is replace the word I with the word, the cartels. And this is what it sounds like. For now we see in a mirror, 
dimly, but then face to face. Now the cartels know in part, but then the cartels shall know, just as the cartels are also known. Make pot legal nationally, period. And soon enough, we'll know the cartels a whole lot better than we ever wanted to. But of course, they're not going to be known as the cartels anymore. In a nation that all too often lauds the reinvention of something without considering whether it's actually new and improved, the Sinaloa cartel should have no trouble getting a table without a reservation at Le Bernardin under their new name, Stratton Oakmont. And if you thought El Chapo, the El Chapos of the world, were difficult to arrest and imprison before, just wait until they get a chance to chat with the CEO of Pfizer during the dessert course of a GOP fundraiser. You'd think we would have learned something after putting George Young in the same cell as Carlos later. But no. And so it will come to pass that a once black hat was miraculously bleached white by the divine hand of Uncle Sam. Look, we got a lot of shit that needs to be fixed in this country. And I agree with Bill Maher that the laws, policies, and attitudes regarding Potter among them. The problem I have with most advocates for legalization is their inability to see past the immediate benefits to the individual and consider the potential opportunity cost to the collective. I've heard a lot of pretty smoke, smart folks make their pitch as to why pot should be made legal nationally, period. And not one of them has given a real-world answer to the question, qui bono, macro. Okay? I think that the reason I haven't heard a reasonable answer to the question, who benefits big picture is because advocates for legalization are afraid to ask the question in the first place out of the fear that the answer might make a recently converted person think twice before purchasing a condo in fantasy land. Let the states keep doing what they're doing when it comes to pot, putting it to a vote one by one. And let's hope that the federal government gets the hint and lessens the penalties and lowers its scheduling classification. But until we're ready to take off the rose-colored glasses of faux-libertarianism, and consider the long-term opportunity cost that a nationally legalized pot industry could have on our nation, do me a favor, take another hit, take another bong it, and shut the fuck up. Because at the end of the day, there is really nothing we can do to satiate the desire for pleasure or the greed that feeds on it. All we can hope for when it comes to this nation's pot policy conundrum is to not be so distracted that we don't notice when someone's making it worse. In conclusion, let me leave you to ponder this analogous quandary. The next time you're considering the prospect of legalizing pot nationally, period, imagine, if you will, that you're buried up to your neck in shit, and there's a guy standing over you about to dump a bucket of snot on your head. Do you duck? <laughs> we keep the groove going here. It's the Flaming Groovies on the SoFloRadio.com. <laughs>
Jim, it's 3.30 in the morning where you are, but it's already noon here in Burgerglob, Yugoslavia, where little Nadia Komenich is preparing for her final floor exercise. Alex Van Diesel, do you think it's a little chilly here in the Tito Pavilion today? It sure is, Don. And you know, Don, the new leotards the girls are wearing this year are cut to ride so high on the buttocks and hips that this chilly air is finding a lot of exposed young flesh. Already I can see that little goosebumps have risen on the thighs of the young Romanian girl. Alex, it looks like Nadia is ready to begin. She stands erect, pert little chest thrust out, shoulders back, head held high. And she begins with a leap and a cabriole into her hurdle jump, followed by a flick-flack. And a front handspring, then a step out into a chasse forward, and a perfect handstand. Ooh. So far done, a flawless performance. And now a stomach roll, a fish hop, a tinsica forward. Now two mounter flip flops, followed by a lunge into a tuck somersault, and an Arab spring. Don, did you notice how Nadia's nipple stood out? Absolute perfection. Boy, I'd like to fuck her. <laughs>
with the kick. Yeah, those guys from Indianapolis, they were around the late 60s, early 70s. Some really cool stuff from those guys. Before that, getting our Irish swirl on once again, them doing Dirty Old Man. That is the first uh, from the first album they recorded after Van Morrison left the band in 66. That was from 67. Before that, the gymnastics from Booger Glob, Yugoslavia, another national lampoon thing. Just hilarious there. 
Uh, before that, the Jive Turkeys doing BA. Uh, those guys are actually, uh, they're from Cincinnati. They're, they're basically, they're the outgrowth of the band, um, Soundscape, um, which is the actual band. Um, and they put together the, this band. They wanted to get more, um, go by, they wanted to do more old school funk. And so they started, you know, like, um, uh, Suicidal Tendencies is their funk band, you know, Infectious Grooves. The first song I played, the Melvins. Okay. Right. This is, you know, they traditionally have their music's a bit rougher, but they're doing more of a funky thing. That's what these guys uh, from Soundscape have done. They put together the Drive Turkeys, kicking it off. I don't know about you. I personally have four different versions of Slow Death by the Flaming Groovies. I think everybody should have at least two, one studio, one live. I, of course, have four. I can't get enough of that song. One of my favorites, the Flaming Groovies doing Slow Death. Um, there's a couple of different albums entitled Slow Death. Uh, I'm trying, I can't remember which one this is from. I played a different version of it another time. This one's a bit raw. The vocals kind of go out. They're not as uh, picked up on the channel uh, right. out of the original recording. But the solo, I thought, was cooler on this one than the other one. The live version's really kind of so raw. The two live versions, they're just so raw. They did... They're just difficult to listen to at times. I am uh, almost time for it to get the drive groove going. Where I got a lot of Irish stuff coming up. I wanted to uh, give a special shout out right here before I kick it off with the uh, mix shredding our, our our set of shredding mix. Okay, which is what I got. And Lord knows we got them. Okay, but um, in this year's St. Patrick's Day Parade in New York City. I have some friends of mine, some good friends of mine, old friends of mine, who are marching with the Dublin Contingent, which is the first group of the parade. Okay? So I want to give a shout-out to Jeff Wall and Richard Kelly and Jude, all of whom, you know, we all played darts and pool and got hammered together at various bars on the Upper West Side. I've known those people for a long time. They are going to be right in front, first group, St. Patrick's Day Parade. I remember... St. Patrick's Day Parade in New York City growing up. You know, that was when every fucking goomba, okay, from Jersey or Queens or Long Island would come in. It was their excuse to, like, get that day and just get hammered out of their gourd. And I remember you'd go through Central Park, you'd see these guys walking around, like, no shirt, okay? You know, it's freezing cold, no shirt. They're walking around with, like, a shopping cart full of, like, you know, half, half of it's full, half it's got empty beer cans, the other half's got beer cans that are still full with like dried caked blood on his face because he got into a fight earlier and he's just kind of walking around with his friends it's a badge of honor you know the the blood and vomit caked onto his chest because his shirt was ripped off in the fight that he got into because he was so drunk badge of honor badge nice, of honor nice the boys from queens coming on in you know i was gonna play shamrocks and shenanigans as i said earlier the the i was looking at the butch vig remix it out one you know some great lines in that too. If I was a Jew, I would light up Madora. This is one of my favorites. Of course, it's time for me to take care of the people who take care of me. Yeah. Precision Auto Works, Pompano Beach, Florida. 954-247-9362. They are moving to a new spot that is bigger. It's going to be on Atlantic Avenue. I'm going to have the address and everything. But, of course, you can always go to the SoFlowRadio.com site. Click on the box mark, Tony C's Groovathon. You'll see lists of every single song I've ever played. And at the top of that, a link for Precision Auto Works. Dave, Tracy, the entire SAE certified crew. Bumper to bumper. I was just in there the other day. Had, had him check out. You know, it's 33,000 miles. I had him take a look at the fluids and everything. 
my boy. Just, well, you know, and that's, that's, that's what I love. I just pull right in that back alley there. Comes out, takes him 10 minutes. He's got in there right now. Holy crap. Does he have cars in there? He's got a, um, shit, not a Woody. It's a, uh, I can't remember the name of it. It's one of these great classic 1955 cars, man. Just awesome. Awesome. Got that puppy up there, you know, and when you see stuff like that, it, it reminds you that it really is. It's the place where people who love their cars take their cars. You know what that means? Time for the drive groove. Baby, I'm cranking it up, okay? Like you're on the Nace Road going from Dublin to Cork, okay? I have got Irish shredding here at the beginning, at the end, and in the middle, a couple of guys of Irish descent doing their thing as well. We kick off the drive groove, though. With the man himself, Gary Moore, doing bad news on the drive groove on SoFloRadio.com.
what's going on Can you correct my vision Helping my decision What's going on You know what I'm needing You won't find me kneeling Standing on a chair My hands are waving in the air You know as well as I do now I'm going to get to you somehow That baby, Rory Gallagher. That is from uh, the, the first band he was in called Taste, and uh, the song's called "What's Going On." It's from their. They did two albums. That's from their second. The first one was called Taste. The second one is called On the Boards. Um, and uh, basically, it was Gallagher. It's his. Uh, ba- that is really like three person rock at its finest. That's that's like one of those bands like the Pirates and stuff where they just got bass, guitar, drums, and they just rock out. Uh, he, he was born in Donegal, but uh, he. Um, Lived in Cork uh, for a long, long time, and there's uh, he passed away in I guess '95 um, after a liver transplant. Shocking! An Irish guy, and you know, needed a liver transplant. I color me shocked. And there's a petition now to rename the airport in Cork after Rory Gallagher. So I'm I'm in with that. For that, one of my favorite guitar players. I, I just was telling uh, George over here that to me, this guy uh, John Schofield is an auteur musician. Uh, that was Lay It Down from uh, Six String Theory. I played something uh, last week. The Australian Kid was also on that um, Lee Rittenauer compilation. John Schofield is one of those guys where if I hear a song that I've that by him that I've never heard before, I'll know it's him. The same way I would Stevie Ray Vaughan, same way I would Jaco Pastorius. Okay? They are, their sound is so unique and so brilliant that nobody else can sound like them. 
And that's what that's like. Before that, the master himself, Doc Watson, Black Mountain Rag. That is from, in my opinion, a must-own. The essential Doc Watson, the two-CD set. It's got about 50-some-odd tracks on there. One after another. Every single one is great. Is great. And kicking it off, one of the great guitar players ever. Gary Moore doing Bad News. That's from Dirty Fingers, uh, one of his first solo albums. Uh I saw him with Din Lizzy when I was living in Ireland. He's been in a couple of bands that are my favorites, Din Lizzy and Coliseum 2, um, which I absolutely love. I played stuff from both of them um, on the show. He died uh, at the age of 58, okay, when they found him. <laughs> he died of a heart attack in his sleep. Uh, he was in Spain, I guess. He was on tour or something like that, on vacation or whatever. His blood alcohol level, 038 yeah, impressive. Okay, because point, I think it's, I think point four. Like once you go above point four, it's considered lethal. Like you die. Right. And he had point three eight. So you know, Irish rockers, man, they just can't fucking put down the bottle. They just can't do it. Now, back in those days, man, you know, I remember going to places like the Punch Bowl and stuff. And you know, all that you would smoke, you could on the double decker buses, the top part of the bus you were allowed to smoke, and really like these. The, the yellow stains on their fingers from smoking yeah. a cigarette. They all had yellow stains. So before we split today, because <laughs> it is um, coming up on uh, St. Patrick's Day, as I was putting the music together for the show, um, a lot of memories came flooding back to me. Um, I lived in Ireland with my mother for three years when I was a kid. Uh, my mom went away on vacation. You know, I, you know, I was living with my mom in New York, and um, she, at the time she was working for NBC Sports. She used to work at Thirty Rock, so which is pretty cool. I used to be able Great. to go there as a kid and stuff. And she went on vacation to Dublin, okay. And when she was there, she met a bunch of people in the theater. One thing led to another. She got offered a job with uh, originally with Focus Theater, and probably, then she was working with Project Arts, a bunch of other stuff. But she got offered a job with Focus Theater. Came back and said, "Hey, guess what? We're moving to Dublin." <laughs> All right. Okay, so summer 74, I moved there, and I was there for three years, and then moved back in 77. And um, in 78, um, one of my, my, basically my best friend from Dublin came to New York in June of that summer. So the first summer I was back, my friend Duncan Wheeler came to New York to visit. He stayed with us for a couple of weeks. Bonus package was that while he was there, me and him went and saw Bob Marley at Madison Square Garden with Stanley Clark's School Days opening. I bring this up because Duncan was also who I was with when I went to my very first like major rock and roll concert, which is when I was still living in uh, Dublin. I, I was like 13. And um, it was in 76. It was Eric Clapton with Ronnie Lane's Slim Chance opening. And it's the only concert that I can think of where I went to the concert and bought the program. You know, you buy the program for the con- I still have it. I All still right. have that program. So, um, you know, a lot of memories came back. And later on in that summer, in August, I went back to Dublin okay. for a visit. And I stayed there for a few weeks. And while I was there, myself and Duncan went down to the first ever All-Ireland Anti-Nuclear Festival. And it was basically... The Irish version of Woodstock. It was three days. It rained the entire time. It was at a place called, it was at Carnser Point. And, uh, you know, shocking. August, a, a, you know, a coastal town. It's on the east coast 
of uh, of Ireland. So it's about two thirds of the way down between Dublin and Cork. Absolutely stunningly beautiful, and it was the spot for the where they proposed to build the first ever nuclear plant, nuclear power plant in Ireland. And cut to the chase on this part of it, they didn't. Okay, it's so beautiful there. It is like every picture you see that you know that beauty that is just when I say unspoiled. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean. It's the way it was a thousand years ago. And it's one of these towns, you know, where there's like 50 people. The center of town is two buildings. One is the pub. The other is half general store, half post office. That's the town. That's it. You know, you're walking down the street, heifers, sheep, just strolling around. You know, a lot of people like, you don't want to be going there from here in the first place. Piles of turf (laughs) everywhere. You know, it's just, it was absolutely stunningly beautiful. And among the bands that were there were Clanid and this last guy that I'm going to play. His name is Christy Moore. Uh, Christy Moore has been a, um, a major uh, Irish recording artist for ever. Okay. He was named um, like the best. This is like about 10 years, probably less than 10 years ago. He was named in a, poll that RTE, which is uh, Radio Telefsharon, um, which is the, the Irish TV. It's like the Irish equivalent of the BBC. And he was named like the best living Irish musician at the time. Like of all of them, he was named, named number one. I point this out because it wasn't always the case. This is a guy, and what it, the feelings that came back to me, um, it's a, one of the things I was reminded of is that it can be easy for us to take um, – free speech for granted to kind of poo-poo it because we're so used to it, okay? And there are places in the world that you wouldn't think free speech is hindered, okay? You wouldn't think in, you know, the Western world that that takes place, but it does. And it has for a very, very long time. Christy Moore is basically, for years and years, is basically, um, trying to think, you know what he was? Kind of like Pete Seeger. Okay. He was a Pete Seeger type guy. And he has had songs that were literally banned from the radio. They were banned. Banned from the radio. Radio, you know, uh, Radio Aaron, which is the Irish radio station part of RT, had banned songs. And there were, um, there was a law that was put in place at one point. Um, I wrote, I can't remember what it was called. The broadcast, it was, uh, the Broadcasting Act, okay, and it made it, it, w- it w- made it not, they didn't use the word illegal, I thought this was interesting, it was forbidden, forbidden ooh, ooh, okay. to broadcast the voices of Sinn Féin members. Now, Sinn Féin is basically the political wing of the IRA, okay. and when I went back to go visit in Dublin, right before I left, my mom handed me a piece of paper mm-hmm. with a name and a phone number on it. Okay, I had the best phone number ever when I lived there. It was only six digits. Okay, when I lived there, eight 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 nine eight. Excellent. Yeah, the other phone number I had was eight eight zero four eight zero, but that's all I memorized. I'm every phone number I've ever had memorized. I don't know why, but I do. All right. Okay, and she handed me this little piece of paper and she said, "Look," and you have to understand that back then, one of the things they loved to do at the airports was they would get you with, uh, "Are you um, at customs?" Mm-hmm. Do you have anything to declare? That was it. Right. Are you declaring anything? I do declare. Uh, yeah. Do you have anything to declare? And what they loved to do was get you going in or out. 
and you know it was extortion. It was basically legal legal airport yeah. government extortion. And there was a time when myself and my mom were coming back. Uh, I used to go back to um, to uh, America every summer, and then I would come back to Ireland in in the fall and stay there for the school year. And um, we were coming back. We got stopped, and we were basically detained for like hours, hours. Right. Okay, as they went through everything, and they you know start doing a like a a quid you know a, a an Irish pound analysis you know of what it is, and then they give you your bill. And that's, you know, and if you don't pay, you don't leave. And so she gave me this piece of paper. She said, if you have any problems at the airport going in or going out, you call this number. My mom knew some people um, that were influential. Okay. And back then, there were only 3,000 Jews in the entire country of Ireland. And my mom knew half of them. All right. Okay. You know, at one point, <laughs> one point, the mayor of Dublin was Jewish. Okay. okay? Right after we left. The guy, guy one of the guys, somebody she knew, became the mayor. Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> My yeah. mom knows yeah. every every person. Every, every was, Irish Jew. There was a, there was a period of time after we moved back to New York where every Irish actor that started to get big, from Daniel Day Lewis to Milo O'Shea to Gabriel Byrne. Okay, it was almost. It was almost law that you had to come and call my mom and have dinner at her place. I'll wager that the Irish Jewish corned beef is the best ever. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, coming I, at it from both ends. <laughs> when uh, you know, I was friends. I knew a lot of these people just because the community, the acting community, was so small, and the theater community mm-hmm. was so small. But it was a brilliant, brilliant community. You've got the Abbey Theater, the Gaiety Theater, the Gate Theater. These these are theaters with a tradition of brilliance. Okay, waiting for Godot, or or as they say it, waiting for Godot. It's not waiting for Godot, waiting for Godot is the way they pronounce it. And she gave me that number, and she said, if you have problems at the airport, going in or going out, you call this number. And she made it seem to me at the time like it was just in case they wanted to check things and, you know, for customs, and I wasn't declaring it up. What I realized later is she was giving it to me because she was afraid because back then the troubles were in full swing. And she was afraid that I might be detained. For some other reason. Okay, that shit was going on. In 78, you have to understand, when I was there the entire time, 74, 77, 78, okay, the conflict uh, between um, the Provo, the, the IRA, the Provisional Irish Republican Army, and the, uh, I guess, the UDR, which would be the Ulster Defense Regiment, which is the British Army in Ulster, was okay. in full swing, full swing. The troubles were – that was it. I missed getting blown up on Grafton Street by five minutes. Got on the 78A bus to go to Greystones. When I got out to my friend's house out there, it was on – the bombing was on the news. And it was literally where the – like a block from where I picked, got the bus. Okay? And so that shit's real. Okay? It's not – you know, it, it hits home at you. You know, we see this stuff on TV and it's kind of – you don't – you know, it do, it's not real. You live there. It's real. It, you know, it was right in my face. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, um, that Christy, you know, when I was putting the Christy Moore track in and I started going through some material and I was looking up some stuff and I realized that um, one, there was a guy named Bobby Sands. And I bring this up because the last song I played by Rory Gallagher from the album, it's, the album is called On the Boards. And what being on the boards is, is uh, it's an Irish term. It's um, the Irish prison equivalent of being thrown in the hole. What they do is they put you in a cell with nothing. You give you a bucket, 
to shit and pissing, and that's it. That is it. And the old jails used to be made out of wood, so you were on the boards. You were sleeping on the boards. And it was considered torture. Okay? Yeah. They would leave you, and they wouldn't just put you, they'd leave you naked. Mm-hmm. They would put you on bread and water diet. Bobby Sands was an IRA member. Um, and there are prisons in Ireland, and the one that I remember, because I saw a poster for it, it's just it's stuck in my mind, was Long Kesh. There was, other, there was a notorious one, uh, the H-Wing of some prison, I can't remember what it was. But these were prisons where IRA members that had been arrested and convicted, okay, that's where they were put in, like, these special prisons. And Long Kesh, notorious, notorious. Okay, just absolutely the shit they did to people in there. It kind of shit makes Guantanamo Bay look like fucking Club Med, pal. Sure. Okay, seriously. Just horrible, horrible shit. And back then, they didn't have the kind of, you know, media intrusion to, to you know, to hinder them from doing whatever they wanted. It was basically Midnight Express without the fun of being able to smoke hash. Okay. And Bobby Sands was a an IRA member who had been in prison for a number of years, um, and he got out literally a few months before I, I left, like uh, right before I moved back to New York. And during the time that I was in New York, he and some other IRA members, I guess, um, they planted a bomb in somewhere in uh, in Londonderry, I think, and um, it exploded. And then they were trying to flee, and they were chased by a bunch of UDR uh, officers, okay? And a gunfight ensued, and they ended up shooting a couple of the UDR guys. They didn't kill him. They wounded him. And he was put in jail for 15 years. He wasn't convicted of the bombing. He was not convicted of the bombing. They got him on the gun charge and the attempted murder charge, and they put him in long cash for 15 years. And he died... Of a hunger strike. He went on a hunger strike for like two months. Him and a bunch of guys, they all died. Like seven, eight, nine of, I think as many as ten died in this hunger strike. They were striking because of the conditions. And what they wanted were these special conditions that had been set aside for IRA members so they wouldn't get the shit kicked out of them by everybody else. The Britain, they were supposed to be put in a separate wing. Mm-hmm. And they, what they did is they put him in there. And the day they brought him in there, for the first 22 days, they put him on the boards. First 22 days in jail, mm-hmm. put him right on the boards. Literally, they said that he had gotten into a, you know, some sort of beef on day one, day one, right on the board. 22 days, fully naked, bread and water three times a day. That's it, 22 days. So what ends up happening is he goes on strike, hunger strike, and ends up dying. Now, Christy Moore, okay, um, has written a number of songs regarding, you know, in protest. And a lot of stuff's been written in protest. And he had a couple of songs that were played. On the on the radio on uh, RTE on Radio Aaron, and they've been played there. And then they were banned one day. And the reason they were banned is because it was discovered that the two songs were actually originally written by Bobby Sands. So they were deemed as subversive, not because of what the songs were, but because of who had written them. The songs themselves have been being, were in were in rotation. There was no problem with it until they found out who actually wrote them, and it was Bobby Sands, and it reminds me that that doesn't happen here. That doesn't happen here. Okay? We're not throwing people in jail, okay, and banning stuff. They literally banned it from all radio. All radio stations in Ireland were, were, it was forbidden 
Yeah. Okay. To to broadcast the voice of a Sinn right. Fein member, forbidden to broadcast his voice, even if no matter what he said, didn't matter. He could just be giving you the recipe for for fucking yeah, no. No, you cannot broadcast his voice. And Christy Moore sang about stuff like that a lot. And I was fortunate. He was also at Carnser Point in 1978. And I got to see – he was one of the headline acts along with Clannad and a number of other Irish bands. And I got to see him as well. And I have a friend of mine um, who actually did a radio interview and spoke out in, in favor, you know, in support of the provost. And we got home from his radio interview. Okay, got back, or home, back, back to his hotel room. The Garda were there. They basically said, your plane leaves in five hours. You are never, don't ever come back to Ireland. That was it. He literally, he didn't, he couldn't go back and he's of Irish descent. Mm. And um, he finally went back on like a golf vacation. It was like 40 years it took him. They, they finally let him back in after like 35, 40 years to go play golf. Okay. So, um, and you know, if you know who I'm talking about, then you know who I'm talking about. I'm not going to say who he is or what he was with. But that kind of shit went on. Now, yeah. we should keep in mind, you know, that there are places in the world, you know, we complain. A lot. Mm-hmm. We want to make America great again, and we do. Okay, you know. Remember something. There are places in the world where, you know, Donald Trump's not allowed to say what he wants to say. And I'll tell you something. I hate most of what he has to say, but I will defend his right to say it all day long. Sure. Yeah. He can say bigoted he shit say all day big, long. Bigoted <laughs> shit all day long. I don't like yeah. it. I think people should not he listen could, to uh, it. Release I don't a think record. You should vote for him. But you know what? I'm not about to I don't think no. Rush Limbaugh or Eric Erickson or any of these guys should be banned. What I'm hoping for is that they their shows are pulled from the air from lack of, of, of listeners. That's what I'd like. Freedom of speech. Freedom That's what of, we're here for. Freedom of speech. If we're the last ones you know, we'll be. absolutely. And it's easy for us to remember, you know, to forget that there are places in the world, man, where you wouldn't think that kind of shit went on, but it does. And it brought back these memories of me from when I was living there because tensions were high, man. And, you know, Americans were viewed, you know, from a from a slant eye. And, you know, Jewish Americans from New York, mm-hmm. a little bit of dough. Yeah. Even slanty right. And, you know, we're, you know, and now you're talking about being in the theater, being in the arts, and the people that were, you know, that my mother hung out with, um, Kevin O'Connor and, and all these guys of Fergus Burke. And these are people that were on the lists, you know, that the, uh, that, uh, you know, the government had. And, um, you know, as I put the music together, it all kind of came back to me. And it reminded me that I am, how grateful I am to live the dream. I can say what I want to say. I can play what I want to play. doesn't matter who wrote it or what it's about. You don't like it? Switch channels. Yep. Don't listen. Okay? But to inhibit the discussion is, is something we need, you know, to be on the lookout for. We need to be on the lookout for that because until you've been in a place where it's subtly done in some ways and overtly done in others, in other ways, okay, you don't know what it's like to not be able to say what the fuck you want to say. Yep. That's, you know, it's a tough thing. And there are people, you know, we talk about people who want to stand at the forefront. Well, Christy Moore stood 
out there. He did it over and over again, and he was detained, no bullshit, as recently as 2004. Okay, the post 9-11 laws that have, have been put in place mm-hmm. all over the world, all over the world, not just here in America. He was detained in Wales on a law that was put in place post 9-11 because of 9-11. And he, him and his driver were like swept up by the Welsh police. Welsh. Yeah. Wales. Okay. Yeah. Tie in. That's where Tom Jones is from. <laughs> Boom, baby. They, he, they was detained. This is not in the 60s, pal. 2004. He was detained, and he hasn't stopped saying what he thinks needs to be said. And to me, that's, you know, that is a man really walking the walk, okay? He sings the song, and then he goes out there and walks the walk that the song sings about, okay? And just have an appreciation for that, folks, okay? Really, you know, um... You know, it's St. Patrick's Day. We're all going to go out and get snockered. I'm not. I, like I said, I stay at home and watch the, R- the Riverdance 95 production. I double lock my door. Okay? I'm double locking that thing. <gasps> I'm probably going roller skating. Oh, yeah. Well, fine. Go go right ahead. I mean, that's terrific. But, you know, I learned my lesson years ago. You know, we used to have in uh, New York, you know, up in the, the neighborhood, I mean, we had the, uh, the pub crawl. It was the funniest thing in the world because we get a bus. Right, one of these like you know yellow school buses, and we'd have like a guy playing guitar, singing Irish songs. We had a keg in the bus, and it would go to various bars. And there was one point where it would go from the Abbey Pub to Tap a Keg. Now that's literally across the street, but we would all pile out of the Abbey Pub. We'd all go into the bus. We'd all start drinking out of the keg. The bus would drive, pull up to the pull up to Tap a Keg. Literally, it's one turn. It's just a turn. It's right there. You can see one bar from the other. They're across the street. Okay? Then we'd all pile out of the bus and go to go into tap a keg. And we used to do that every year. And I swear to God, I saw people, okay, that I knew as reserved, evenly keeled people just yakking right over the bar. Just projectile vomiting. Okay, right over the bar. Okay? I'm not gonna say their names, but anybody who was there knows exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you'd see the and now I'm fifty two. And you know what? No thanks. Been there, done that. Woke up in a pile of my own vomit. Thank you. Don't need to do that anymore. In any event, I have been lucky enough to live the dream. And happy St. Patrick's Day to everybody. I let it. Thought I gave you a little bit because I know that you're, you're, you? you're on yeah. my side with an independent, united Ireland. Absolutely. United Ireland. Don't like military occupations. Don't like colonialization. Those days are over. Everybody go home. That's exactly (laughs) it. And the complaint has always been there. You know, well, now that the Protestants are there, if the the army leaves, they're going to be, you know what? Shut the fuck up. Okay. They shouldn't have been there in the first place. They shouldn't have been, you know. But I'm sure there's a reasonable solution. I've actually been, other than in Northern Ireland, I've actually been in every single county in Ireland. All right. Every single one. Excellent. Every single one. I've done stuff. I kissed the Blarney Stone on three separate occasions, okay? And I was gonna, I was down there again with my mom at some point, and we were sitting down to, in order to get lunch back then. You would go to, like, the pub, and they only had two sandwiches, ham and cheese and cucumber sandwiches. That was it. That was the entire fucking menu. Wow. That's right. the menu, okay? And we were sitting there, and we are talking to the guy behind the bar, and he goes, well... And he's saying, oh, you're going to Blarney Stone? Yeah, I've done it before. I was just going to go over there again. He goes, you don't want to be doing that no more. I said, why? He goes, the local lads, they like to go up there at night and piss on it. So that was, so I stopped kissing the Blarney Stone after that. Sounds yeah. great. Started, <laughs> and started looking at it. Started, yeah, it was like, I was like, well, thanks. 
thanks for that tip there. Yeah. yeah the barkeep. You know, I f- appreciate that, you lad. Brilliant. The lad was brilliant, they say. In any event, as always, an attitude of gratitude is what we center around here. The last song I'm playing is by Christy Moore. Now, remember, I saw this guy in 78 at Concert Point. This album that he does, this is on, um, I can't remember the name of the album now. Um, uh, Listen is the name of the album. Listen is what it's called. And it came out recently. It's like 2009. And this is a version that he does with him. Um, he's got a guy that he plays with um, that's like his regular guitar player. I can't remember the guy's name, unfortunately. But this is their version of Pink Floyd's Shine On You Crazy Diamond. And I'm telling you, okay, this is going to send chills down your back. It is the best version of the song I have ever heard. And when I listened to it, my first thought was, this is the way, this is how it was supposed to be done. When they wrote it, this is what they had in mind for how it should sound. So, for myself and Los Georges, okay. Thank you. As always, I want to say aloha, peace, slosha. Good night, mom. Remember when you were young, you shone like the sun. Shine on you, crazy diamond. Now there's a look in your eye, like the black holes in the sky. Shine on. You were caught in the crossfire of childhood and stardom and blown upon the steel breeze. Come on, you tiger, for far over laughter. Come on, you legend, you stranger, you martyr and shine.
1926 Hollywood Boulevard. You're listening to SoFloRadio.com.